Friday, January 19th, 2024, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Big news out of Congress. These guys, they just deliver. President Biden's expected to sign off on legislation that'll now keep the government open through February. February. We are not worthy. Oh, what a bang up job. Such largesse to benefit us, the constituents. And how do they do it, our officials? I mean, there are 13 out of 435 members of Congress who don't like the deal, and still they pass it for like a month and a half with only 97% agreement. Amazing. You know, I'm disgusted. I bet you're disgusted. And I, I said to myself, if I was a congressional reporter, I would quit. I would quit. I've basically quit real interest in the GOP race for the nomination. I think it's done. I'll bring you coverage. I'll ask the questions, but I'm no longer interested in in it. I think it's a done deal. I think I know why it's done deal. It stopped being interesting. Ben Wittes had a great list of stories in his Substack. Stories he does not care about. I don't care if Taylor Swift is dating. I don't care if you think Taylor Swift is queer. That was a big New York Times thing. I don't care whether JetBlue acquires Spirit Airlines. I'm Mike Pesca, do. I don't care whether Miss America is an Air Force officer. I don't care whether the Ann Arbor School Board voted for a cease fire in the Israel-Gaza war. I mean, I care, but beyond the headline, I'm like, tells me all I need to know. I don't care if I can get my liquor store purchases from the Drizzly app. Nope, Drizzly's closed. I, I, they sent me the notification. I'm like, oh, I bought Drizzly once. I don't care about King Charles prostate. You don't? That's weird. He said, feel free to add links about things you don't care about. And everyone in the comments, I think their things were a little signaling of things that were beneath them. Mostly, I don't care about this sportsman or that sportsman or this pop culture person. I wrote, I don't care about DEI and planes, but obviously I do care. It's a bizarre theory. Ben's list, most of the readers tended towards, you know, the beneath us category. I want to be brave. I have been in the past. I admitted, I don't care about water in the West. I mean, I do. Mike, do you want the West to have water? Absolutely. But I'm telling you, if you tracked my eye movements, they would never scan on the stories that are about water in the West. I just know something, something, 3,000 gallons to make a single almond. That might be the problem there. That's my advice. You know what else? I'm going to be brave. I'm going to be brave and talk about some other things I don't care about that I should care about. So not in the Taylor Swift dating category. I don't care about ancestral claims to mountains or People believe that this mountain is a holy site, therefore you can't build on it. Like, I get it. I understand. We all have our folk beliefs. If you were here thousands of years before us, I know we have to defer to your folk beliefs, your witchcraft more legit than our witchcraft. But if you have a real reason why they shouldn't build whatever on the mountain, like say a telescope or an observatory or whatever you thought should be built on the mountain, and it comes down to, ah, yes, but the ancient spirits, I don't care. It's not a good argument. Also, this is very dangerous. I don't care about museums giving back their artifacts from whence they came. Like, I do care. It's kind of good that it happens. If it makes people less upset, sure. I will never read the details. The details are always the same. After a long time, the museum curators, pressure by the native country, ceremony at the embassy, and now we can go forward. Never read the stories. I don't care. But you know what I do care about? I care about you, 
my gist listener, and I hope you care about the spiel, which will contain today details about the Houthis, who are now being pronounced the Houthis and being pronounced by me, dangerous people who deserve a nice counterattack every now and then. But first, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld is a professor at the Yale School of Management, and he's played a quite active role in pressuring Western countries to leave Russia over the war that Putin has waged on Ukraine. He joins me next to explain why the common recent media coverage of his efforts is wrong. The New York Times said everything that he is doing in Russia adds up to just nothing but a few more coins in Putin's pockets. No, says Professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, and that's up next. Soon after Russia invaded Ukraine, Western nations sanctioned the country. Western companies were not necessarily sanctioned, but were pressured to stop doing business in Russia. Some of this pressure, much of this pressure, emanated from Dr. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who's the Lester Crown Professor of Management Practice at the Yale School of Management. He kept lists. He kept tabs. He publicized which companies were and weren't doing business in Russia. And he and others like him pressured, and maybe you could even say chased some countries out of Russia. But a few weeks ago, the New York Times did a report that was titled, How Putin Turned a Western Boycott into a Bonanza. And I will read the subhead of that. If companies want to leave Russia, the president is setting the terms in ways that benefit his government, his elites, and his war. Sonnenfeld was quoted in that article, and he's back on the gist to talk about, well, his objections to how the New York Times framed the issue and what, as he sees it, the facts on the ground are. Professor Sonnenfeld, welcome back. Uh, Thank you, Mike. It's an honor to be with you. So I will read just straight from some of the New York Times investigation, and you tell me, as you see it, what they got right, what they got wrong. A New York Times investigation traced how Mr. Putin has turned an unexpected misfortune into an enrichment scheme. Western companies have announced departures, declaring more than $103 billion in losses since the start of the war, okay? But Times' analysis of financial reports shows Mr. Putin has squeezed companies for as much of that wealth as possible by dictating the terms of their departure. He has also subjected those exits to ever-increasing taxes, generating at least $1.25 billion in the past year for Russia's war chest. Do you think those numbers are accurate? No. Uh, is, uh, he has been squeezing companies uh, uh, to pay war taxes, but he's, he's uh, it, it basically what is missed there is this is a 75% decline in the amount of taxes that Putin was getting from foreign companies. It's That's enough to have uh, purged this article. The fact that that alone, and by the way, that's maybe one of the least consequential statistics Uh, But I'm glad you opened with it because it just shows how reckless, faulty, uh, ill-informed this research was. 
and uh, not to offend a third of your uh, listeners, but we often see this when you have political reporters that stretch themselves too far and are not economic or business reporters. They don't know what they're looking at. So that's one right there where it's it's more than a 75% decline that even they admit than before the war. So it's had a, a devastating impact. And uh, uh, that's, uh, that. you know, uh, but I, if you want to t- serve up some more, we can go after them. But every one of the government enterprises has shrunk enormously. And uh, part of the of the core argument, I would if it was on any other uh, opportunity, I would say the gist of of the New York Times article is also that they have forked over these priceless assets uh, to Putin cronies that have enriched them. Uh, yes. So, for instance, Carlsberg Beer, um, they wanted to sell or they felt that they needed to sell because maybe pressure from you and others. Putin blindsided Carlsberg by seizing the company, placing it in the hands of his longtime associate and judo friend. And then they name, uh, I think his name is Timerzov Boliev. Um, and this has happened time and time again, that a distressed, motivated sale went to a Putin crony. So even if the taxes weren't flowing to the Russian coffers, this was enriching kleptocrats and overall supporting Putin and buttressing him. And the response to that is uh, is manifold as well, is the um, the companies that left, it, it didn't cost them anything to leave. And Carlsberg could have done that as well. I said, how could that possibly be? Well, the professional service firms, the law firms, consulting firms and things that left uh, and the software and social media firms, they didn't leave hard assets behind. So the Times argues, yeah, those hard assets were left behind. So it's only those companies, you could argue. But even those companies were like all companies were rewarded profoundly. The instant and this you could any viewer could actually take along. I think, look at I think it was March fourth of two thousand two, and I went on CNBC and read out those who who truly had pulled out versus the fraudsters that pretended to pull out, like Carlsberg and didn't. Is they were punished severely. So they there was a stock surge positively in favor of those who pulled out because it reduced operational risk, it reduced uh, a, a financial risks, and a certainly reputation risks. They're rewarded for pulling out. Uh, many times over, uh, so that uh, those write downs that more than doubled the asset value of what they got back from the market. So it didn't cost them. They made money uh, pulling out. And none of these companies had really any much more than 2% of their global revenues coming from Russia anyway, generally about 1%. And those revenues were not profitable revenues. Revenues are top line, the bottom line, they're barely breaking even. And many right. of them are wondering. But Still- so that wasn't the main, and I'm allowed to use it, the main gist of the article. It was, and I don't I don't know that the article would argue with that. It was it good or bad for the companies, but it clearly states over and over in a few ways, and we'll get to another one, that it was good for Putin because once these companies knew they had to sell, he controlled the terms of sale. He could steer the companies to his people. He could take wealth and extract wealth directly from the companies rather than through taxes. But you're saying that didn't happen? That didn't happen. And, and the, the way that the reason that that didn't really happen is that those companies aren't worth much in the aftermath is, uh, say, a state owned enterprise or that they took control of is Gazprom. Uh, it, it, that's down in value by by roughly 80 uh, percent. And if Putin wants to uh, stand behind uh, the, the, the the deep fryer, the former McDonald's, uh, let him flip some burgers and make some fries. 
if people uh, and there is nobody on the planet that's claiming that we have lines around the block at those at those McDonald's in Moscow anymore is that they lost the brand value, but they also lost the intellectual property, the IT, uh, the drilling in, in, a, in, Ar in the Arctic has stopped. Uh, there was a, a major investment they were trying to make with with Western companies uh, in um, uh, 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 in, in liquid na liquefied natural gas that stopped 100 percent. They couldn't do it without the intellectual property. So these the, the, the value of these assets collapsed by more than 80 percent. No matter who owns them, they're not worth anything. There are a number of, of these uh, uh, companies. Uh, the valuation was uh, based on uh, uh, investments and things that were going to happen in the future. Uh, those never happened with Western development. Those years off, that that just never happened. It was a, a, in mining companies and things like that. So he's using an anachronistic valuation on companies on prospective business development that those companies, when they were in Western hands, were going to have that were going to happen. They didn't happen. So those companies are pretty close to, if not literally, worthless now. So I see. Uh, and the only sources he has to support that are no economists because nobody has that visibility. But the Cafe Society journalist from the Times that didn't go out to the countryside and take a look at what's happening there, uh, I didn't realize that um, uh, that these companies are drying up. Uh, this is why Evan Gershkovich is uh, for the, now 10 months in a Russian prison. He's one of, for the Wall Street Journal, one of the few, unlike the New York Times, Gershkovich went out there to look at the countryside to see that not only are the shopping malls boarded up, but they've also shuttered the factories. That right. uh, It's not happening. They can't get the parts. They can't. Get, they don't have the customers that, in, that comp, industry after industry has fallen by 60 to 90 percent, depending on 95 percent in automotive, depending on what sector you look at. So there's nobody to buy it. There's nobody to sell it to. And they can't develop the technology. The Arctic Circle drilling that they were doing uh, with Western companies has not only ground to a hot, halt, uh, but Putin is suing uh, Exxon and BP for pulling out of those deals. He's also suing Reuters for talking about this, you know, so let alone putting uh, uh, putting uh, Gershkovich in, in prison for revealing these truths. And that's really tragic. And so that's the real story is is these businesses weren't worth anything. So Gershkovich did report on this. And I'm looking at a March 28th, 23 story in The Wall Street Journal. Russia's economy is starting to come undone. But I mentioned that to cite Gershkovitz, but also because it was the Wall Street Journal. And just recently, the Wall Street Journal, more or less agreeing with the New York Times, has reported otherwise. They are now reporting Russia has weathered sanctions better than many in the West thought possible, with growth expected this year, keeping economic activity afloat, oil sales, a massive increase in military spending, and handouts to ordinary citizens in the form of enhanced pensions and cheap loans. And there's also talks about a mortgage program. So I could cite other sources outside of the Wall Street Journal, most in the Western press, and to some extent, they echo Russia's official statistics. They're saying that there's economic growth in the country. That doesn't necessarily say that the program of private company targeting didn't work, but that's the question I want to ask you. Um, from what I glean from your readings, you doubt that there is economic growth in Russia. Is that right? We, we not only doubt it, we say it as a matter of fact. It's, it's not the truth. And you mentioned other sources. It's important uh, to say that you can find other um, media echo chambers who say it, but 
if you're like, well, I'll just cite, I'll just cite a few. A Reuters poll of analysts showing GDP in Russia rising by 3.1% in 2023. That growth this year should reach 3.5%. The analysts polled by Reuters. So there was a panel, NPR quoting Alexandra Prokopenko at the Carnegie Eurasia Center talking about 3% growth. Um, the New York Times talking about 3% or unexpected growth. It's not just one or two. I would say that the vast majority- I would I say looked, 100% looked, of those, and I'm paying, yeah. telling you, based on my my salary this year or uh, something, maybe much more than that, 100% of those sources, it's all echo chamber uh, gossip. None of them are pointing to actual data. But uh, foreign traders, and there is still a version of a currency trade, I think probably out of Dubai, certainly oil traders. I mean, the investment community is not pouring money into Russia, but they still have to make assessments and desks have to give recommendations and try to reflect the reality to the people who are trading these either currencies or substances. And by and large, echo chamber or not, wouldn't you say that that the investment community is looking at the Russian economy, at least for next year, as something other than the basket case you're painting. Uh, Putin has three assets here, three qualities. One of them is that he has um, concealed these the actual statistics. There are about 60 national income statistics that are required as a member of the IMF to submit. And he has gotten a special exemption secretly from uh, apparently Director Georgieva, and we've published this in multiple places, and she and they have yet to correct it, and they can't because we have them on video admitting to this, and we also have their slides, that they are just accepting Putin's propaganda in their forecasts because they don't have access to the 60 national income statistics that all the other uh, 150 IMF members are required to submit. Since the second quarter of Q2, they suppress that information. I'll tell you what that is. But the second thing that they have is they have the hope and prayer that over time there's growing disaffection with supporting Ukraine, in particular in the U.S., and that Trump will come back in, and that'll create fissures in the Western Bloc and, uh, and, and, and dilute U.S. support. And the, the third thing is uh, the naivete of the Western media, largely political reporters that don't understand the economics and financial analysts that lost the bundle by making just the assumptions that you just did. For example, J.P. Morgan themselves told us after the outbreak of war, they told the world oil was going to go to $400 a barrel. If you look at it right now, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's below, it's around $70, and that's where it's it's been. It's gone down to the 60s. It went to as high as about 100 for a couple seconds. It's never come anywhere near, not even anywhere near a quarter of where these adults said it was going to do. They talk their own book. Is his two thirds of his exports are energy, uh, and guess what? His energy exports are down. Uh, his his profits on energy are down more than half. That's two thirds. He's getting nothing on gas. Uh, he said to everybody he was going to pivot uh, uh, as spitefully and show revenge on EU support for Ukraine by cutting them off and, and sending all of his natural gas to Asia, to India and China. Well, he, he couldn't and didn't. All your analysts that you quote there said he was going to do that. And economists at major universities around the world said, oh my gosh, Putin's going to do that. He couldn't because what does he not have? He doesn't have any network of pipelines to deliver that natural gas. That natural gas is all in the, in the, in the format of vapor. 
that has to go only through pipelines. The rest of the world had access, Europe had access to LNG because of the amazing Germans and even before that, the Poles and, and Lithuanians built terminals and conversion plants to bring in liquefied natural gas from the rest of the world, which has plummeted 80% in price. So Putin flares off almost 90% of, of his gas. He can't sell it to anybody. And his oil, it's under price caps. Both, more than half of it is under the enforced price caps from the, the West and, uh, and G7. And then the rest, uh, what India and China buy, they're riding, getting free rider status on the coattails of the sanctions. They also uh, are, are, are paying the same price as the, as the sanctions abiding companies, forcing Russia to sell their oil at, at best at cost. Right. It costs Russia $45 a barrel to extract their oil, and it costs them another $12 to $15 to get it to these Asian destinations. That's break even, just do the arithmetic. Foreign direct investing, uh, that's a, a critical uh, variable that, that Putin has suppressed, but we've, we can found and we've published and uh, it's fallen by $100 billion. Yeah. It's gone to zero. Well, just in terms of basic economic theory, driving out all competition and, and confiscating uh, wealth creating corporations can't be good for the underlying economy. No, every sector has fallen 60 to 90% talent flight. He's lost 10% of his technology workforce. The capital flight, it's about $260 billion in capital has, has left the country. They've lost 30, over a third of their, of their billionaires, uh, their millionaires. Uh, there's no Russian company has any new stock, no foreign investment. And uh, they can't, they can't get, even China won't make a loan uh, to Russia. The ICBC, the world's largest bank, second largest bank and bank of China, cut off all loans to Russia at the same time that, that the West and the G7 did. Massive destruction of wealth. These companies that Putin says he sees that he's handing over to his cronies, they've fallen anywhere from 50% to 90% in value. So they're, you know, uh, having a larger percent of a worthless company doesn't mean anything. They don't have any customers. They don't have supplies. All he has is the cannibalization. This economy is roughly 65% Putin now owned and controlled, uh, and he and he's, he basically he's cannibalizing. He's taking investments in the future in technology and in new markets and in new products and environmental protection. He stopped all that. He's just harvesting. He's just cannibalizing, hoping that Putin will get, that Trump will get back into office and he can basically throw the living room furniture into the fire long enough to to keep thing to keep the engines going uh, of his war machine. So what is the phrase? Eating your seed crop. Yeah, that's what he does. If this is the Russian phrase Potemkin village that you paint it as, how will that present itself? What will be the signs in, let's pick a time frame, six months, a year, where we will be able to say, ah, it was all based on phony numbers, groupthink, and everything else you're talking about? If Trump does not get elected, then by the end of 2024, by Christmas time, and I'm not making a political statement here, I'm mm -hmm. just saying, this is what Putin's only strategy is. He has no military strategy. He has no diplomatic strategy, and he has no economic strategy. All he's counting on is, is Trump's reelection. If that doesn't happen, uh, then by this time next year, everything collapses. Uh, it, the whole uh, inflated smokescreen, the whole Potemkin village falls, falls apart by this time next year. So we will see, we will see on the front lines of the war, him not be able to rearm the troops. And we'll see food lines in Moscow, or at least some of the villages. Yes, he won't be able to continue the cannibalization anymore. It'll become painfully clear. Already, 
uh, uh, Deripaska and some of these, uh, some of his closest oligarch cronies have admitted that uh, that the, the economy is in distress. Okay, I like that. I like uh, prediction. And I'll ask you the other side. If you're wrong, uh, let's allow for that possibility. What is a sign or a marker where you would say, okay, I didn't expect that, and that does indicate that perhaps the New York Times story was getting some things right? Uh, it's impossible we're wrong. And we said that on the energy front, just as one example. And guess what? Uh, other than two energy analysts who agreed with us, uh, 99% of the energy analysts were wrong. Either they were uh, hoodwinked, uh, uh, as the IMF was by Putin's propaganda, uh, or they were uh, inadvertently uh, uh, collaborators because they were talking their book and it was in their interest to be alarmist. But you can talk to any, any energist that was um, that was uh, uh, expecting we we're going to have soaring uh, energy prices uh, last year, and they lost their shorts. So we're I'm, we're quite certain of this. This is if Trump doesn't get reelected. If Trump gets reelected, uh, then uh, we're uh, at the prospects of World War III. We have a whole different problem because the rest of Europe is imperiled, and uh, uh, we're going to get drawn in because Poland will be attacked, and that's a pretty bleak scenario. And finally, I know you convene a business roundtable with big leaders. What do they tell you about this? Did you get calls or back channels uh, from CEOs saying, yeah, what the hell is the New York Times talking about? Or did you, how it would probably show up is them kind of being uh, squirrely about talking to you after the New York Times said you were wrong? Not a single CEO did anything other than to say, what are they smoking at the New York Times? What are they thinking? And this is even before they did a 5,000 word uh, expose on Taylor Swift's lifestyle, which is based on nothing but uh, fabrication. Are we getting that? That's, that's part two of our interview, <laughs> your critiques of that one. <laughs> so nobody can figure out why the New York Times has been destroying their own credibility. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld is the Lester Crown Professor of Management Practice at the Yale School of Management. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I hope I wasn't too subtle. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think we could pick up. We could read the tea leaves of what you were strongly implying. And now the spiel. The governments of Pakistan and Iran had very nice things to say about each other this week. Ooh, quick trivia question. What do the governments of Pakistan and Iran share with one other country? That country being Mauritius. Mauritius. But anyway, the two countries in question, the non-Mauritius countries, were being very complimentary. Here is Mumtuzara Baluk, a spokesperson for Pakistan's foreign ministry. Iran is a brotherly country. And the people of Pakistan have great respect and affection for the people of Iran. We have always emphasized dialogue and cooperation in confronting common challenges. Oh, that is nice. The Iranian foreign ministry responded with kind words of their own, referring to Pakistan as a friendly neighbor and said that Iran didn't want to, quote, allow enemies to strain the amicable and brotherly relations of Tehran and Islamabad. 
Now, why are these encomia being sallied to and fro? Encomia, plural of encomium. Well, it's because preceding the exchange of accolades, there was an exchange of missiles. A couple of days ago, Iran struck inside Pakistan, and two days ago, Pakistan responded. Pakistan claimed it wasn't really striking the God-fearing people of Iran, such good friends, such loyal subjects to the Iranian leaders. It was striking the terrorists operating within Iran, specifically Baluchistan. This was after Iran struck inside the Pakistan border against groups who it says were the real terrorists. If you want to get into the details of who the real Baluchistan separatists are, are and who has the rightful claim to Baluchistan and what is my Baluchistan versus your Baluchistan. I want to get into that too, just on a different podcast, not this one. In the Pakistan spokesperson statement, she claimed that the territorial integrity of Pakistan is sacrosanct. Well, not just sacrosanct. Which is sacrosanct, inviolable, and sacred. Sacrosanct and sacred. I guess you had to list those two individually because the middle one, inviolable, sure seems to be called into question because of the strikes. It should be noted, and I will note it, I swear, I will note it here, that the Pakistan strikes into Iran were the first physical strikes in Iran by a foreign country in 30 years, huh? which is why Pakistan had to really, really, really play down the enmity between the two states. The New York Times quotes Wakar Hassan, a retired army brigadier based in Islamabad. He stressed the precision and care with which Pakistan had conducted its targeting in Iran. Quote, Pakistan and Iran need to move forward. I think this situation can de-escalate now. Ah, yes, the care and precision of the targeting. It was a cleansing of the palate. It was a clearing of the minds, a shaking off of the various Cobb's web. And the care, they didn't just fire the rockets from ground bases, but they put on a soothing Enya track in the background as they sip Tai Chi while programming the strike coordinates into the weapon system. And then when the missiles struck, sorry, were gently lowered and had their payloads reach a state of self-actualization, it really was inspiring for future generations. And that will all be featured in an upcoming Brene Brown podcast. The seriousness of events and sparks are sometimes portrayed as a natural consequence of Israel's actions in Gaza. To take the Democracy Now! segment, from Red Sea to Iran, will Israel's Gaza assault spark wider war? I would argue the spark Okay, you could say it's Israel's war on Gaza, but if that was the spark, the flint was the Hamas attack on Israel, and the kindling was all the Iranian arms flowing everywhere in the Middle East. Representing the left, I choose this segment from Democracy Now! We'll hear host Juan Gonzalez interviewing The Nation magazine's Spencer Ackerman. We, we often hear as well about the axis of resistance supposedly uh, controlled or financed by Iran, uh, but uh, very little about the access of empire of the UK, uh, the United States, uh, and Israel uh, in the region. Uh, to what degree does this axis uh, have a more uh, right to control the affairs of the region than those who are actually uh, uh, from countries there? 
quite well said, Juan, without ceding any of Iran's claims to regional hegemony, the United States and its allies act as if they are the representatives of the natural and just order of the Middle East and not, in fact, Western impositions upon the aspirations of uh, the citizenry, the people of these countries to determine their own affairs. First of all, was it well said? I mean, we all heard it, right? It seemed a little like strained dogma. But the idea that the Houthis, who took power in a coup, not democratically elected, not close, or Hezbollah, who just basically torture the citizenry of Lebanon who can't kick them out, or the Iranian government itself, that these are all representatives of some sort of true will of the people. I think they are the true enemies of the West and some people like that, such as maybe a lot of Iranians and the hosts and viewers of Democracy Now. Okay, I'll buy that. And now let's take the phrase, without ceding Iranian claims to hegemony, And then he proceeds to cede all Iranian claims to hegemony because you can't. You can't engage in that sort of discussion without just blowing past the fact that the Iranians are horrible chaos agents who basically want to put anyone close to free or approaching free under the heel of the Islamic State. Are these strikes against the Houthis by the United States? Are they acts of aggression? No, they are rightly considered counterattacks. They're not attacks. Well, they are attacks, but the attack is modified by counter, counterattacks. And the point isn't who started it. The point is, what's the right thing to do? The Houthis hijack lawful vessels navigating international waters, right? To do so, I know uh, Tim Houthi Chalamet is dreamy and easy on the eyes, but they go onto these boats. They point Kalishnikovs in the faces of innocent Filipino sailors just trying to get cargo to Europe and feed their families, maybe. The Houthis haven't hit ships in the Red Sea, but they are launching more and more missiles at ships who are lawfully in the Red Sea, who ship cargo that you and I probably use. And you're telling me this is the will of the people? This is what the will of the Yemeni people want? This in any way improves the material circumstances of a population who suffers from cholera outbreaks because the Houthis have laid siege to water basins? That is a crazy way of thinking about it. The Americans are not acting imperially or okay, maybe they are if it's so important to lay that buzzword on them. What's really going on is Iran is just lashing out over and over again. And the notion, oh, it's Israel's fault for giving them a reason to lash out is belied by history, is belied by everything in their charter. They don't need a reason. They, in fact, they've been a little bit restrained after Hamas as free agents pulled off the October 7th attack. Iran doesn't need a reason to brutally crush dissent in their own country, to arm proxies throughout the region that the region resents, yeah, including the people of the region. Iran doesn't need any sort of spark to fund rebels who oppress their enemies when it's in their interest. When the Iranians have that many guns, that many militia members, that many agents of ill will spread throughout the world, the appropriate action according to some, we heard a couple on the Democracy Now! segment, is we have to do nothing. Whatever happens, we have to do nothing. Or if we're going to do something, we have to have a symposium about how it's the mistakes of the past. You know, the Shah, the founding of Israel, Balfour Declaration, really. When a rebel group takes aim at ships, you know, you have to just let those ships get destroyed because Carter and the Cold War.
When terrorists come over the border of Pakistan, Pakistan just has to let that happen or else escalation and empire and Israel. No, there are more escalatory and less escalatory actions the U.S. can take. Absolutely true. And sometimes doing nothing absolutely is the right choice. But never doing anything, that is certainly the wrong choice. The entity that wants to take killing across international borders is not the U.S., is not Israel, it's not even Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, not in this case. It's clearly Iran. And I am not saying we must confront them in the hardest way, stupidest way possible and strike Tehran. I am saying when Tehran strikes and strikes and strikes and strikes, it's actually a long-term tactical disaster to just keep letting them do it. When escalating Iranian militancy is not met in any meaningful way, that is not de-escalation. That is defeat and ultimately death. The Gist was produced by the quaint Mallards, Corey Wara. He's the producer. Joel Patterson, senior producer. I have the answer to that trivia question. You ready? Iran, Mauritius, Pakistan. They're the only countries with the words Islamic Republic of right there in the title. Michelle Pesca, she knew that. She's in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening. Now we're the ducks. Yeah. And the ducks yeah. are undefeated. All right. Yeah. Quack. 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 Quack.